This is the Lifestyle as Medicine podcast, and I am Mike Riccio, longtime personal trainer, professional strength coach, gym owner, and most importantly, a devoted modern father and husband. I've been fortunate to learn under some of the most intelligent minds in health and fitness over the past 15 years, as well as work with amazing clients and athletes. What I've most fallen in love with over the years is the power we have over our lives, the power to decrease risk of disease and injury, the power to reach our true potential, the deep abilities the body is capable of when all aspects of health are working simultaneously. On this podcast, you will learn the importance of preventative health and how to optimize your habits to optimize your life. Today, I'm sitting with Brittany Worley, registered dietitian and board certified in sport nutrition. Today, Brittany and I are gonna touch on a host of nutrition topics, but namely the idea of relative energy deficiency. And in layman's terms, we are gonna talk about how much energy you need versus how much energy do you actually take in. Now, Brittany works primarily with athletes nowadays, but the concepts in this episode work for anybody. What are you trying to accomplish and how much energy is that going to take? And are you getting the right amount of energy in that's going to fit your goal? As you're gonna hear in the next 45 or so minutes, there's a lot that goes into these decisions especially for a young athlete who might need to take in a certain amount, but is still battling an aesthetic look and a school schedule and the stresses that come with everyday life of anywhere from a teenager to a young adult. As an adult, of course, you're going through the same things. You have a sleep schedule. You might have kids. You have work schedule and stressors, and you want to have an aesthetic look. So what Brittany does with her clientele is absolutely crucial, and you're gonna hear a lot about what she does today and how she helps both athletes and the general adult population make sure they're getting the energy they need to fit their goals. So listen in, as always, let me know if you have any questions, and um, check out Brittany to hear more. Listen in. All right, we are on. Brittany, thank you for being on today. Of course, thank you for having me. Can we kick off with just a little background, a little bio about yourself and what you do and who you work with? Absolutely. So my name is Brittany Worley. I am a registered dietitian and I'm also a board certified specialist in sports dietetics. So that's an extra you know, credential after I got into the field with some training and testing that I did because most of my background is with sports and athletes. So um, I didn't originally think I wanted to be a dietitian going through undergrad fell in love with it when I took a class with a really well-known sports dietitian as I think a senior in college and kind of did a 180, changed course, did my clinicals, you know, all the, all the things we have to do as practitioners, and then worked in collegiate athletics for several years before transitioning to the private sector. So I have worked with athletes of like all different sports and ages, but collegiate was probably my like most intensive immersive experience in athletics. And now I work with athletes with eating disorders and I teach a lot of athletes intuitive eating as well. And a lot of my clients are younger. So I do work with parents quite a bit and kind of that family food dynamic, but it's been a little bit of a non-linear path, but a lot of fun so far. Well, before we get into specifics, I'd like to maybe yeah. define that term of athlete. Because, mm -hmm. and you, you can give me your opinion on your side. I know for me over the past 15 years, the separation between the athlete that ends up on a court or a field and mm -hmm. the way we treat from a movement standpoint, the way we treat the general population has 
shortened, right? There's less of a difference mm-hmm. between the two. We are training the general population more athletically than we had in the past. Do you find the same happens on the dietetic side and what you do? So I think it depends on the practitioner and kind of whose office you land in. But yeah, that's always been my philosophy. I have worked with clients who may not label themselves as athletes, but once we start talking about their habits, the way they move, what they're looking to get out of you know, their nutrition or their health habits, we really are looking at them more from a performance standpoint than they might expect, which I think is, is a great trend, like a great direction to be moving in for sure. The opportunity for the general person to be more athletic and to be more active is out there, even though I know that the, the sedentary and the obesity rates aren't, aren't fun to look at. They're, they aren't mm-hmm. always moving the right direction. But technically speaking, things like obstacle course racing and you know sports leagues, and these things are growing rapidly. Yeah. So the idea that it's hard to become more active and to still participate in some level of sport later in life it's not, it's, it's actually easier than it's ever been, which I think is really increases the need for individuals like you to really speak to people like the performance athlete that they're trying to be and to bridge that gap. So. No, I completely agree. I think so many people expect to come into my office or to get on a call with me and see sort of like a clinical dietitian, right? Very. And I mean, I love numbers. I love labs, all the things, but the way you speak to somebody when we've got a performance goal or that piece that is motivating us, it just feels so different than what people may expect working with a dietitian feels like. And that's what I'm always trying to embody. Like we're all athletes in some sense. It's just how much do you believe that and how much do your habits reflect that? Sure. So well, let's let's dive back into the athletic side specifically, yeah. and, then, and then we'll kind of start separating the two and make sure we, we talk to both audiences here. But on the athlete side, mm-hmm. you and I spoke in the pre-recording about the idea of relative energy deficiency and really, I guess in layman's terms, and you can get more specific, how much energy is required for that athlete versus how much they are actually taking in and the ratios that go into that. Where, where do you start in a process like this? Where does maybe the assessment side of things, you have a new athlete that comes in, how do you start identifying the needs of an athlete and where does a program start to come out of it? Yeah. So, um, if you don't mind, I'll just sort of define that term so that if people aren't aware, they've got the context. So they understand how I'm assessing, but relative energy deficiency in sport is essentially a syndrome that at the root of it is based in the fact that that athlete or that person, right? It's not always an athlete, like we said, is not consuming adequate energy to physiologically have their body function the way it needs to and layer on their training demands, right? So there's a disconnect in energy in versus energy out to keep it simple. So in terms of assessing an athlete, when I pretty much go into all my consults assuming we're going to have to adjust their energy availability. And that's not always true, right? Not everybody is in this state, but I think many athletes, whether it's because of misinformation or just a lack of awareness are going to accidentally or sometimes purposefully under fuel. And so asking really, I guess, like strategic questions about how they think about food. Are there times where they notice hunger cues that they ignore or don't make time for, like almost the more subjective pieces first to get a full picture of 
what does that relationship with food look like? And then we layer on what is your training load? How do you feel from an energy standpoint? Are you noticing any frequent injuries? All of the pieces that we know are sort of signs and symptoms of an energy deficit. But I like to start my assessments with more of where is their head at around food? Because if they're throwing around terms like I eat really clean all the time, or sometimes when I'm hungry, I wonder if I'm just thirsty. So I don't eat. Like if I start to notice some of those maybe disordered tendencies that could get in the way of adequate energy intake, we might not even get to the training questions before I'm screening them for red S, right? It just depends on the, on the athlete and the, the vibe that I get. And would you say the reasons for this very, like, is there, is it usually an aesthetic reason or is it usually a lack of awareness or is it pretty equal? I think it depends on the population and the athlete's background. So that could be anything from the sport culture in general, right? We know that athletes in aesthetic sports, weight class sports, even endurance, they're going to be more at risk, but even on like a micro level, what is their team culture? around body image performance and food like. But then there are, yeah, a lot of athletes, especially the younger ones who are going through a lot of growth and development who are just completely unaware of how high their energy needs are. So it's it's definitely a mix, but the environment and their sport can can play a role. You know, I, I asked because on, you know, I don't dig as deep, nearly as deep into this with my athletes as you do. Mm-hmm. But just from a conversational standpoint, I, I see a lot of gender differences and I see a lot of age differences. Yep. That that high school athlete really it really digs into the aesthetic with me, and I if for me the athlete has both. The high school athlete both wants to look a certain way, mm-hmm. and just has never been brought to this level of education. When it comes to yep. most high schools, don't have someone like you available <laughs> yeah. to bring this in. So either it's not talked about at all, or it's whatever they're learning in maybe a PE class, which is okay. That's great. I'm glad the information is getting out there somewhere but it's probably, again, it's probably not being presented like you. So if we start with the high school athlete, which I know you work more Mm -hmm. with collegiate, where would you start to go down this path in terms of like resources and kind of teasing out need for a high school athlete who is still being fed, fed by their parents in some way or another groceries are being purchased by a parent. You know, how, how would you go into a high school athlete first? Yeah. So are you, I just want to make sure I'm answering what you're wanting to get at. Um, are you asking really like, what are some of the first things we might implement or talk about? Yes. Sort of, or, okay. So if we're dealing with a high school athlete where you're right, parents are still going to control food to some aspect, I will really start to dig in to, is there anything about their current habits that they already notice may not be in line with what they want, right? So is, you know, that 16 year old baseball player exhausted when they play double headers. And last year he was fine on those days, right? Like, are there things that they may already see that we can start to connect to that energy availability concept? And at their age, if there are some things like that, I will often use the analogy of like a bank account. I'm like, I know like you don't really have your own yet, but you get how this works, right? We've got our bank account. We're depositing our money occasionally. And then we also have to pay our bills. And what it sounds like is maybe your your bills are getting greater, right? Your training load is increasing. The number of days you're practicing is as you move up onto those higher level teams, right, is, is increasing. And so your bills are stacking up, but your bank account looks like it did last year or the year before. 
right? And I see that a lot with high school aged kids. They will be eating pretty similarly in terms of food type and portions to the way they ate two or three years ago, right? And I always say you're, you're growing, right? There's a lot of energy demand there. And as sport demand gets higher too, like you are racking up a much bigger set of bills and calorie needs, right? Than you did three years ago when you were in a smaller body and you were on JV. So trying to really start to show them that we need to keep those two accounts in harmony, even as life changes, training changes is sort of the picture I try to set for them in that initial appointment. I'm glad you brought that up because that is the the growth part of the equation that doesn't exist for a fully grown adult, you know, like a collegiate athlete. From a training standpoint, yeah. when I have my entire baseball team in as freshman through senior, the freshman can't do what the seniors do. And a lot of that is from a growth standpoint. My freshmen and sophomores are in a completely different developmental stage. Loading is different. Pace is different. Everything is just a little bit different. So, so obviously that, that exists even more so on the, on the dietary side. Right. Yeah. And I don't think they always notice that if they're, you know, they have the same sort of schedule as they did as a freshman, or sometimes it's even, and parents aren't intentionally doing it right. But parents might be kind of preparing or, or sending them to school with the same amount of food. And they just aren't thinking about that component. The difference in energy needs from a, you know, a 12 year old to a 16 year old can be drastic. Like that gap can be huge. Sure. How much do you see this translate to, well, I guess before I go to that, I want to ask you, cause you brought up the bank account thing. Yeah. I know we, we typically deal with under and under calories. Mm-hmm. How much do you ever see athletes that are over depositing that, that are on the mm-hmm. overside or is this more, is it just not as often? It's certainly a thing that we see, but it's not as often. And I think we tend to see it more in collegiate and pro than we do high school because the energy demand of growth and development is so high. So it's, it's oftentimes a fight to even get them to even in those two accounts, right. At the high school age, but yeah, collegiate for sure, because of the change in access to food, sometimes incorporating alcohol, right. Or just, um, just like a different food sort of lifestyle set of habits than they've had before. We do see a little bit more overconsumption, I think, in that population or in pro as well. So. Yeah, I, I ask because I have a lot of parents ask me about, quote unquote, bulking up. You know, <laughs> I, my kid needs to get bigger. He needs, you yeah. know, so, and these are more male athletes <laughs> that, that tend to ask this question. Mm-hmm. You don't get this much from the, the female parents. But, uh, but it's, it's a tough question to answer, it is. right? Because cause you want, and you're right, most people probably, it's probably not an issue because they're so active. It probably takes a lot. But how would you answer that question from a yeah. parent that approaches you with, I need, I feel like my son or daughter needs to gain weight? Yeah. So I think the most important thing, and this was something I was not very skilled at when I first got thrown into the field, but I've learned over time, is setting the expectation of depending on where they are in growth and development, that may not be the easiest goal for them right now, just from a like a hormonal standpoint, like does their body even have the tools yet to significantly increase muscle mass, right? Because at certain ages, we're not really there yet. And I find, you know, you've got the, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but when I get this question most, I think is when a male athlete enters high school and maybe from like a puberty standpoint, he's a little bit behind, but dad wants him on that varsity team as quickly as possible. And it's like, can we speed this up? 
right? Yes. And the answer sometimes is not really. So setting that expectation, but then absolutely, right? We can assess, um, is he maybe not meeting his energy needs? Is he not meeting a lot for a lot of boys that are trying to put on mass, they will hit their protein needs because that's where their brain goes. And then at the expense of inadequate carbohydrate for muscle growth and development. So just assessing, does their balance make sense? Are they even hitting their energy needs? Can we improve sleep? Can we incorporate strength and conditioning? Like what else can we do that we may be missing the mark on? But I think setting the expectation with parents, depending on where they are in their development, we may need to just give it a little time and optimize what we can now and then be patient. So uh, you're right. I, it is, it's often the, the pre-puberty, the, the currently puberty parents that are asking. And right. then the second tier of that is the pre-collegiate athlete who believes mm-hmm. that if they're going to make it to the next level, they need to start, start acting the size. So uh, parents yeah. are all, parents are always looking ahead, you know, from, from my side, I get questioned a lot on the type of lifting. Well, they need to get bigger. I'm like, right, but do you want them to get slower? And the answer is always no. It's like, well, then, then we have to. We have to kind of let the body react. You know, let's, let's get them stronger. Yeah. We have to be careful with, with how much we play with that because there's going to be, from a skill acquisition standpoint, there's a give and take. There's always a give and take between size and speed and size and speed and size and speed. And it's rare to get these athletes that are phenoms on both that really get, you know, so it's from a lifting standpoint, it's, you ask for some trust from the parent because it, it can get a little, a little iffy on what they believe the training should look like to get their child to a certain standpoint. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I see a parallel too, if you don't mind me just kind of doing please. a tangent, but please, um, yeah, please. Okay. I, I love a good tangent, <laughs> but I see a parallel with, with nutrition too, when we get that request, right. Of can, can we get this kiddo who's maybe 14 or something to gain weight? And then as I start to suggest changes, I'll get pushed back like, well, I've heard that's not healthy. And there's a give and take with nutrition too, right? When we're trying to gain weight, there's food quality and there's food quantity. And we've got to kind of play with both of those factors. And there are times where, like you've mentioned, right, with the speed and size and and sort of how that all plays into skill, there's times where one is more important than the other. And so that's how we adjust intervention and lean in differently. So it's very fluid and it's sometimes hard for parents to see that, I think. Yeah. So There's very interesting research in certain sports and certain positions on size first ability. Mm-hmm. For instance, you have guys that look at professional pitchers and collegiate pitchers, and most of them are about 15% heavier when they're at their best than than they probably the average athlete believes they want to look like. Mm-hmm. And, and these are just numbers and you can, and people can give or take, you know, take them with a grain of salt, but it is interesting because those metrics do exist. And, and to balance that with the feeling and emotion of what is still a, a child for most of these, you know, mm-hmm. even young collegiate athletes are still, I mean, I guess in my mind, they're, they're still kids in a lot of ways. Yeah. They, have, they yeah. have social pressures and there's so much that goes into what motivates them in their workouts and how they make their food choices. It's just so much to balance, isn't there? It, it really is. It's, it's hard. And that's why often my husband will joke sometimes and he'll say, I think maybe you're their therapist too. And I'm like, nope, I'm, wa- <laughs> I'm watching the line there. But we do have to talk about yeah. what actually motivates them. Because if in this moment, this 15-year-old baseball player cares more about aesthetic than performance, 
then we have to work with that, right? And we either have to try to talk about how maybe a different goal is more valuable, or we say, okay, if that's truly the more important piece right now, then we've got to acknowledge you may not be able to do both, right? You may not want to look like the best version of you as a pitcher, or you may want to look a specific way, but that's not the best version of you as a pitcher, right? And that's a hard one for them to understand sometimes. Yeah, I just did... I did a very short episode this past week on Tom Brady and keys to success and why he was so successful. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it was just putting yourself in the best position. And what I've always liked about him was the combination of recovery and health and work ethic. And he had, he seemed to find this really, this sweet spot between them. And that's a little easier, obviously for a pro athlete to do when this becomes your job. And this is the only thing. I just love that you touched on that because it's so true. And just this is social side. And you're right. When you have to choose priorities, when you you mentioned looks versus performance, a lot of it for us too is if you don't want to spend the time in the weight room, that's, and that's okay. I got to work with that. But if you also want to perform a certain way on the field and you want to get to the next level, there's probably a certain level of work. So we have to decide where the priorities lie. And that can be very difficult for a 14 through 19 year old to make those decisions. And speaking of which, you mentioned, you said the word alcohol. So let's, let's go there, you know, <laughs> yeah. young, you know, and obviously this is not something we were promoting, but it's just the truth of the matter is even young college athletes are already mm-hmm. starting to explore yeah. where, where does that come in to your conversations? And even let's pair sleep with that too, because lifestyle in general, alcohol mm-hmm. and sleep and how they recover outside of workouts. How does that come into your, your assessment and your conversations? Yeah. So I will ask even pretty young about alcohol intake, just because I know I'm probably the only one that's going to ask Mm -hmm. and I can tie it to things like recovery. Right. And they kind of expect me to maybe have that conversation with them, perhaps not bringing up the alcohol piece, but like they know I'm a dietitian. I'm going to talk about recovery, nutrition and things like that. And so then that's my opportunity to start to loop in that education in a way that they sort of already are probably open to and expecting. So really what I focus on with athletes, if they are having alcohol be a pretty, you know, regular piece of their habits is talking about, is there a way that we can curb total intake? Like, is that something you're open to? And can we be smart about timing? Because alcohol, right, in an athlete's diet, in moderate, like, reasonable amounts is not a death sentence. It's not going to wreck everything. But we do want to make sure you're not sacrificing recovery from a -a two-a-days or, you know, something where we need to give your body the best chance possible to recover. That's not the day we drink or the, the next day. So a lot of times we'll talk about total intake and timing because really the tough part about alcohol, right, is just that your body is going to prioritize digesting that and getting that out of your system over things like muscle recovery, rehydration, all of these other things that we know are really key to how an athlete feels the next day or even the next week. So yeah, really, we just focus mostly on is intake excessive? If so, where do we go there? And can we improve timing so that we are sort of just minimizing our risk of complications from that? And then sleep is kind of the same way, right? Are we, can we adjust sleep hygiene or volume of sleep? And if not, can we at least prioritize where we're going to focus more on sleep? 
Well, I love your answer about linking. Does that sort of make sense? It does. It makes perfect sense. And I love how you, yeah. your, 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 your point about linking, because there's, mm-hmm. there has to be a reason for any, any athlete or general population for any goal to make a change. This is behavior change 101, right? We have to learn to want the goal more than we want whatever our current habits are. And to link to that recovery side and performance side and, and make sure the athletes understand that this isn't just a, we think you should not drink because you shouldn't drink and then performance is over here. This is this is not that. This is that they mm-hmm. are actually on the same road and they, and they go together and they have to be addressed. Yep, exactly. A lot of, I don't think a lot of athletes are spoken to <laughs> about their habits in that, context, right? With here's how it actually truly connects to performance. I'm not telling you not to drink or not to stay up late on the weekends because I'm an adult and I think I should tell you how to live your life. Like putting it in the context of performance for them makes them feel like you're hearing them and it gives them more skin in the game to actually make a change. Sure. Food timing. I'm just going to keep using the keywords that you, you keep giving me. And so (laughs) I appreciate it. your easy segues are great, but <laughs> you mentioned alcohol and timing. I'm currently reading how not to die by Dr. Greger. I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with it. And I think I've heard of it, but it's interesting. You know, he, he, and this is more from a, a total health conversation. That's mm-hmm. what the topic of the book is. It has nothing to do with athletes specifically, but every human body is a human body. Mm-hmm. But in the, in a chapter about heart disease, he talks about the, and you, please, you dig in much deeper than I'm, than I'm able to, but just to quote his study and his research, the acute effect that nutrition has on us, meaning that, you know, he, he spoke to how a meal and food choices could affect things like density of arterial walls mm-hmm. for a few hours after eating and how that could affect a workout. And, you know, if people are trying to get to this point of, of heart health and fat utilization, how food timing does play a role in, in, in that. So I'm using that as a segue too. How do you, how do you start talking about food timing from an athletic standpoint and a performance standpoint? Mm-hmm. So I think usually my approach will depend on the age and the education level of the athlete already, but what it mostly comes down to for them is explaining that even if we're not worried about a workout that's coming up in the next hour or two. Like even if we're not focused on timing for training as an athlete with really high calorie, carb, protein needs, whatever it may be, it's going to be really difficult to get all those bills paid, right? If they only eat three times a day. I mean, you can try, but I've worked in the collegiate setting with athletes that need upwards of 6,000 calories a day. Do we really think you're probably going to be able to get balanced meals in that also equate to enough total calories if you only sit down and eat two or three times? Probably not. So for a lot of them, we'll just go back to the logistics of, do you think now knowing what you know about your energy needs, could you even hit them with those three meals? Is it even possible? Do you even want to try to eat that much at one sitting? Or are you probably not going to feel great and we probably have to add in between and kind of supplement with snacks? That's, that's usually the easiest way to get them on board if they're meal skipping unintentionally or just like their timing's all over the place. Uh, well, I'm, actually, I'm glad you said that because the, the mm-hmm. idea of 2,000 calories in a meal makes, makes me uncomfortable. And obviously, I don't have yeah. those needs anymore. <laughs> I met once upon a time, but not for a long time. That's a lot. And that's a lot to, it's lots of, for, no, I want to say force. Force isn't the right word, but kind of. It's a lot to try to yeah. tell an athlete that you need these calories, get them in, and they're trying to fit them in within three meals. 
and then they do try to go perform and they just go, or just go try to live. They try to go to class. They try to go to school. They try to, you know, that, yeah. that, can, that can be a lot. And even for the general adult who is not to make a segue here, because I don't want to go to the adult side, the general population side yet. But a lot of people are trying to fit their calories in within a meal or two sometimes. You know, the, the adult population is terrible about letting their days get away from them. Maybe eat at the start of the day, but probably not. Mm-hmm. Maybe touching on lunch here and there. And then all of a sudden, the end of the day becomes this kind of free-for-all to get calories back in. So it's just touching on the importance of the awareness of how many calories you're taking in and how to spread that out. I think it's awesome that you touched on that because it's, 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 it's something that we, aren't, we don't talk about a lot, the physical effect that a large meal can have on the system. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. Even, even coming from the right calories, right? That's still just a lot of volume coming in. Yep. Yeah, and I don't think... I don't think um, younger athletes have the sort of foresight to realize that, right? If if breakfast is a granola bar and lunch right now because of COVID is some like prepackaged box thing that's like 600 calories and then I have three hours of practice, like how am I even going to eat enough throughout the day? Like they don't, they don't right. kind of look forward. And so just that really simple concept of like, hey, there isn't enough time in the day to skip meals or to use snacks in place of meals and still hit your nutrition needs. It's just not going to work. So we have to plan differently. So let me throw a, a very specific example at you and just, let right. you, I'm just going to let you react to it. And this was how, this is the only talk of nutrition I had as a high school football player. Okay. The only talk nutrition ever was we played on Friday nights mm-hmm. as varsity athletes. We played on Friday nights, Thursday after our walkthroughs at seven, seven thirty, we had a huge team pasta dinner. Yep. <laughs> I mean, the pain, God bless the parents that came in, you know, 10 or 12 parents every time came in and they made just, and, and, I mean, pounds and pounds and pounds of pasta and breadsticks. And, and that was it. And, that, and it was, it was a sincere, this is for tomorrow night. This is to get you ready for tomorrow. Yeah. Night. <laughs> so you react to that, however you want to react to it. But, but what would you, if you're meeting with a coach who was trying to ask you your honest advice about how to speak to the athletes about food, and they say that is what they're currently doing. Where does your advice go? So my, the way I always start off with advice, if I know there's likely a better way to do it is making space and acknowledging what they are already doing. That's really helpful. And so something that I think about with high school athletes a lot, just based on what I've seen is they do underfuel. It's most, you know, for a lot of kids, it is intentional. Like we've already talked about, but the likelihood of them going into a game on Friday after a full day of school with solid meals and fully replenished glycogen stores after a hard Thursday practice or a hard Wednesday practice isn't that likely. And so, you know, I would have let your coach know, like, I love that you're making sure that they're ready from a carbohydrate standpoint, right? I think this is a really good time where we could also explain how do I get ready for a game before the night before? Are there other things I could be doing throughout the week that get me ready for this game in a more gradual sense, but I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, a pasta party if we're working with a lot of high school aged male athletes who aren't likely eating enough throughout that day anyway. But yeah, kind of segueing into, could we take this acute focus off nutrition a little bit and talk to them about some longer term habits? An easy one for a lot of them is hydration. 
hydration starts like 48 plus hours out from competition. If you really think about the science of it. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes even just starting to go in there with really, really simple changes that you can connect to longer term habits can help. And then realizing too, that they're high school kids and sometimes their ability to like really process past a couple days pregame might not be great. And maybe that is just where we lean into our education, just kind of depending on the group you have. Yeah. And, and for my athletes that are listening, I, I want to gear in on something you said about the buildup from the week, how mm -hmm. Tuesday affects Friday. Now, I mean, not that specifically, but, but right. I mean, there's, yeah. if we're trying to prep for Tuesday, it's not just what I ate three hours before the game. It's, it's what I did three days and four days and five days before the game, mm -hmm. just like the lifting does, just like there is a very specific opportunity to be at your best. And it's not just making sure you rest enough. It's not that you didn't rest too much either. Like there is a sweet spot between when your last workout should be prior to performance and how that affects how you perform that day. And nutrition is the same, right? It's, it's really is, a, it's about the bigger snapshot, not just the immediate snapshot. I completely agree. I think, and this is a generalization, but I think right. what I see a lot with nutrition is people either think about it in the very, very acute, like, game in two hours, what do I do? Kind of like what you were just saying. Mm -hmm. Or they think about it in such a big picture zoomed out lens that I can't even talk to them about Gatorade because that has too much sugar is what they've been told and they want overall health, right? And so it's almost like that ability to see that sweet spot in the middle where we're doing some long-term habits and we're also incorporating our acute strategy. That's really where athletes can take their performance to the next level if they're ready to give it that level of thought. But I, yeah, I think people put it in either a really acute or a really chronic bucket usually with nutrition. Yeah, ab absolutely. How do you deal with common fads in diets when it comes to athletes? So keto diets are popular and there's, there's so <laughs> much, we, we just live in an age where information is almost too readily available sometimes because yeah. you just don't know where you're <laughs> getting it from. Who I forgot who said it, but we don't have information issue anymore now. We have, we have a filtration issue. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's our bigger challenge now. But really, but how do you, you know, athletes have come to be with like, well, the Mediterranean diet is best or the keto diet is the best, or, you know, there's, or, or plant-based and vegan is the best. And there's just so many different things. How do you approach that conversation when an athlete comes to you with clearly a preconceived motivation to stick to one diet? Yeah, that's a great question because even, you know, I have friends in this same sort of field doing sports dietetics who like that's their biggest struggle or like gripe is the number of times they get asked about a fad diet. So usually the way I will approach it is I'll ask one of three questions, just depending on, you know, what the athlete actually says when they first bring it up, I'll either ask what made you want to start this, right? If they say, well, my energy's not great. And I've heard keto is really good for energy levels. We can probably start to talk through their fueling practices and maybe I can find some simpler suggestions. So why did you initially want to start this? Two, do you know where this diet initially came from? So a lot of my athletes are like really that. surprised that keto originated for treatment of epilepsy, yeah. right? Yeah. And I'll, I'll just sit with that for a second and say, so it's possible it can work for an athlete, but do you think the person that initially structured keto was thinking about you, right? About your performance? That's question two. And then what's question three? Those are the, the almost always I can get them with those two. Is this a diet? Is this an approach that you could do forever, right? Like something you actually enjoy and that's actually feeling good to you. And that one normally is if they've already been doing it for a little while, 
right? Most yeah. athletes will, thankfully at this point, they know I'm around and they'll come to me before they've kind of fully dove in and like have already bought the new food and tried the new supplements and things. But that one, you know, if they can't stick with it forever, even if there is a performance benefit, it sounds like we're going to have to find a new strategy eventually anyway. So let's just kind of start to talk about maybe how we can find a middle ground. Interesting. So let's fast forward to the end of a collegiate career. And Mm -hmm. I'm assuming this is probably a conversation you don't get to have as often, but correct me if I'm wrong on that too. Mm -hmm. I'm a college athlete and I'm playing my last game. I'm not taking the next step. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm about to go into a nine to five job. I just graduated. I'm about to go into a desk job. How do we handle that transition, that dietary transition in what's going to be a complete revamp in lifestyle? Mm -hmm. One, do you actually get to have that conversation? Because I'm guessing probably not as often. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, then how do you handle it? Yeah, I... I don't know that anybody's ever asked me this question, but I'm so glad you did because I think it's such, um, it's a time point in these athletes lives where they kind of get lost in translation, right? Like nobody's really focusing on them anymore because they're not in that performance realm, but they're going through a transition that is arguably probably one of the hardest ones they're going to go through in that 20 something years of life they've had so far. So if I have an athlete who I've built a great relationship with, and I know they're transitioning away from sport and we've got the time, I will teach them some really simple concepts like plate balance, or depending on where their relationship with food is, maybe start to talk about intuitive eating a little bit. And like, how can you start to get better in tune with your body? If you haven't done that, you know, in terms of hunger, fullness, what foods actually make me feel energized. Sometimes athletes put that on the back burner, just kind of assessing what techniques might help them transition. And then there is this fabulous book by Lauren Link, who is the director of sports nutrition at Purdue called From Athlete to Normal Human. And it's, it's great. And it addresses that exact sort of tough transition. And what do I even do? And I think she may have rebranded it now that I'm, I'm actually going to look here. I think she changed it to the healthy former athlete is the title, but she only has this one topic. So if you were to look her up, you can certainly find it and we can probably, I'll do some research so we can put it in your show notes, but, but yeah, it's, it's fabulous. And I've given that to quite a few of my athletes before. All right. Well, I'm going to buy it right away because that's, I've, I've never seen anyone. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So if my, if my wife's listening, it's another book that I'll, that I'm buying. I like to buy books at a pace that I can't possibly read them. I'm very good. I do the same thing. I think I've bought six or seven since the beginning of the year already. And Uh, there is no time for that. No, absolutely not. I've actually created a library here at the gym for members to take out books kind of on a temporary thing. So I call it the, it's the Mar library, but to be honest, a quarter of the books are books that I brought in that I want to read that I haven't even read yet. So <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's it's just, awesome. I just can't get to them fast enough. Thinking about Audible. That might be my next step. I, I might I, just have to do it. I've, I've finished three books this year. I'm sorry. I've finished six books this year. Three are from Audible. I would not have finished six if it wasn't for car rides and, and doing cardio with, with Audible. No way. Right. <laughs> but I, I, I love this that you had a recommendation for that topic because mm-hmm. you're right. It's, the opportunity is hard to, it, it just doesn't exist from a strength coach standpoint as much with my high school athletes. I do talk about life after sport because it's, it's a little easier because most of them don't have the mindset of later. It's, it's mm-hmm. just a smaller percentage. So I can say, listen, I want to build a reputation 
for health in general. I want you to have an appreciation for exercise and activity. And I'm talking to parents a lot. So parents like that. Yeah. The, the college athlete of all levels has some type of like, well, what's next? And it's harder to transition. That's just the life, you know, is mm -hmm. I'm an athlete. You start identifying as an athlete. So you're right. The opportunity de for me, definitely from an exercise standpoint, I can't tell you if I've ever had an athlete ask me that question. Right. And then from a person that works with both the general adult and the athlete, there is a huge gap between the, the general age that tends to come asking for help with fitness. So if the, mm -hmm. if the average athlete, the average college athlete stops playing in their early twenties and maybe the average early 30 year old is who's going to start coming ask for help. So there's a decade of difference typically yep. on my end of the spectrum of who asked for that. So I, I, I love that you, one, I just love your answer in general, but I love that you actually had a referral <laughs> for that because I'm, I'm going to go read that right away. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's been really helpful for some of my athletes just to, cause it is that identity piece too, right? It's identity. And then it's the practical of, well, how do I even do things now that I'm not that athlete? So it's, it's hard to take on. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Well, I'll, I'll buy that and I'll read it in the next three months, somewhere in there. Let's transition a bit. Let, let's go to the, the weekend warrior. Let's go to the, the general adult. And yeah. I realize it's not something you're working with as often, but where are the big differences? Are the big differences more in the goal setting? Is it in total energy expenditure? It's also in varying energy expenditure too, right? Because that's the challenge, at least I have with my general adults, is an athlete typically practices every day. I mean, it depends what season, what, what part of the season they're sure, in, of course. Preseason, most season. of it. But there's activity every day. There's something happening most days of the week for the most part. The adult, it might be two days a week. It might be five. It might be just Saturday and Sunday. It might be for one really good week and then not for three. There's so many transition, natural transitions. And then life happens to the adult. Are you a parent? Are you not a parent? Do you have a new job? There's just, there's just a lot. Mm -hmm. If you're talking to an adult where one, how do you get the point across that they have to be aware of their current day to day in, in relationship with food? And, and two, where does the conversation kind of change from an assessment standpoint as it would have with the athlete answer? However, however that goes in. Sure. So I think I'll start with sort of your first question, because I like what you hit on already. The idea that for, you know, adult clients for maybe more of the recreational athlete or somewhere in that area, right? There is a lot more variation in sleep. If they're a new parent in how often they're training, if they're switching up their training, there's just, it feels like a much more of a moving target with overall health habits than it does for an athlete where we know their schedule, we know their training demands. So what I really do spend a lot of time on with adult clients and I have less of them. So this is a more like, you know, shallow amount of experience to draw from, but it really is assessing where are they at with food? Like, are they a chronic dieter? Are there just barriers there that they don't notice? Because for most adults, I genuinely think if we can make them a more intuitive eater, they're going to be able to take care of their health in a way that's much more consistent. So I'll give kind of an example. I see a lot of adults and a lot of times, you know, maybe like late twenties, early thirties, they're like metabolism starting to change, or maybe they now have, you know, young children and like their time to dedicate to cooking or fitness or whatever it is, is starting to decrease. And they start to grasp at straws like, well, what, what's the new way I'm going to approach this? And they download a calorie tracker app, which 
I've used before. I've used with clients before. It's not inherently a problem, but a lot of them let that that app dictate how many calories they're going to eat every day, regardless of what you hit on, regardless of the variety, right? I got five hours of sleep. I feel better on eight. Now I'm suddenly super hungry, but I'm still held to this specific calorie number. Or I trained, I trained, I guess I should say twice today because I had a planned workout, but then I also had to chase the kids around for an hour and a half with a play date. Like there's no room for flexibility when we reduce our food down to a number. But I think for a lot of adults, that's where their brain starts to go because they're focusing on weight control. And so for them, a lot of it is like, what's your relationship with food look like? What do you actually want to get out of your health habits other than weight? Because that one's a moving target. It's so hard to manipulate for some people that if you say, well, I don't want to have that energy dip at 2 p.m. or I don't want to be starving at dinner and feel like I have to eat the whole pantry as I'm cooking. Like, what are some other things you want out of your habits that we can do and kind of back off on some of the numbers focus for them and, and move it more towards just behavior change that makes them feel good. So definitely less number focused than the athletes. Well, and your, your adults need simplification because they have more to juggle. Yeah. So you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's way too hard to say you're going to do this on these workout days, but this on these workout days, but these on your non-workout days, Yep. way too much. And, mm-hmm. and as much as it might be the textbook right advice, it doesn't matter if it's not followable. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. Yep. Um, 100%. <laughs> and to backtrack one second, and I apologize if I'm being repetitive, you, you mentioned intuitive eating, which is which is the topic we, I want to make sure we cover today. Can you define what that is? Because I think that's a topic that's, it's a word that's become more and more popular. Mm-hmm. What is intuitive eating? Yeah, thank you for, for asking. So intuitive eating is essentially a framework, a lens through which we approach nutrition that focuses on things like self-care, being in tune with what our bodies actually are feeling and needing, and listening to those internal cues over external cues when it comes to what and when and how we're going to eat. So a lot of us, we're like, we're born intuitive eaters, right? Babies can self-regulate portions and things Mm -hmm. like they naturally have that ability. And as we start to grow and we're influenced by like just the general diet culture and diet advice, we start to lose some of our attunement for those internal signals. Like client the other day gave me a really great example. Actually, she had started to put this food rule around desserts, like cannot have desserts, not okay, not going to do it for whatever reason, right? That was a Mm -hmm. rule she had kind of adopted. And she challenged herself, which she did this before we even started together, which I thought was great. She challenged herself to get rid of that rule and have something sweet after every single meal for the next couple of weeks, just, just until she felt less stressed about it. Yeah. Right. And after about four or five days, she said, well, I started to realize, I mean, if I eat like a high sugar food first thing in the morning, I don't feel great. No way. Right. But like <laughs> we, we lose. And I say that in a sarcastic way, cause that's just my personality. But I was like very proud of her for connecting that intuitive eating helps us reconnect to here's how food makes me feel. And then here are some of the practical things that I know about my schedule. And let me kind of put that all together in a way that isn't influenced by this like restrictive food mindset. 
essentially. Yeah. Does that does that kind of make sense? Like that I, picture makes perfect sense. And I, I sometimes it takes people experiencing for themselves, right? Mm-hmm. It takes people feeling things. Otherwise, it just doesn't connect. Like you can try to describe what they may feel, what they should feel, or what you you know what you think they might feel ahead of time. Mm-hmm. A lot of it doesn't matter until they do. And how often have you seen people that do start to incorporate healthy eating really don't notice the difference until they revert back? Like you just said, the sugar yes. was a perfect example, but all of a sudden they've had a, a quote unquote good week for the sake of just easy terminology. They've had yeah. a good week. They've been focused. They got a lot of sleep. And then the next week sleep went back to what, whatever the previous habit was. And they're like, oh my God, but that's probably what they felt mm-hmm. like every day already. Right. So they, they don't, that's the baseline. No they don't yes. notice. Yep. Yes. So they've created yep. a new bar. And, and I love that point in general that sometimes people don't realize what a high bar looks like until they climb the bars. Mm-hmm. Like, and from a potential standpoint too, habits seem like they are unachievable until they've made 10 other ones up the ladder. And all of a sudden, like, I can't believe, I'm sure you've had this too. Where I've had clients turn around, like, I don't even know who I am anymore. Cause compared to when I, you know, when I started working with you a year ago, I never, ever thought you'd get me to do X, Y, Z. And now I can't exactly. live without it. So I love it. Very cool. Well, Brittany, I, I'm looking at time and want to be, want to be cognizant as always. Oh, this yeah. has been awesome. Where where can people find you and where can people continue learning from you? Yeah, thank you for giving me the opportunity to share that too. I didn't even realize the time. We're just chatting over here. It's great, but- I can go for hours. <laughs> this is very easy for me to just not stop, so- I can too. It's a joke <laughs> in my family that I am the chatterbox. Like I will talk to anyone about anything and put me in a room or on a Zoom room with you and it makes it very easy. So yes, um, I'm, I'm with you. But, but yeah, so people can find me on Instagram. My handle is fueled and well. So like fuel, like gas in the tank, right? Fueled and well. And my website is the same, just fueledandwell.com. And, um, really that's, those are the only two places I'm active enough to, to shout out, but I do a lot more athlete focused education on those platforms, but there's also options on my website to work with me, whether you're an athlete or not on that sort of more intuitive eating journey. Cause that's something I'm finding really rewarding right now. So I work with clients virtually in that space. Very cool. Well, listeners, mm-hmm. please, please go check out Brittany. I see your stuff daily and I use your stuff all the time. It's, it's helped me with conversations with athletes. So thank you for the content that you put out. It's, of course. it's, it's very helpful and everyone should go check you out. Thank you again for, for jumping on this today. It's been Absolutely. fun. We'll, uh, we'll do a round two at some point. Cause I'm sure again, we could go on for a lot of different topics in a lot of different ways. So I agree. We'll definitely have to do that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you stick around for a moment for listeners. Thank you for joining in. Rate and review the episode and let us know what you think. And again, please go check out Brittany at, uh, at both her Instagram page and on her website. And we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Lifestyle as Medicine podcast. Find more episodes like this at www.lifestyleasmedicinepodcast.com and visit www.marhealthandperformance.com and at Mar Health and Performance on both Facebook and Instagram for more great content and information about programs. Have a great day and see you next time.